Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, October 7th, 2011. Mm -mm. All right, let's, I guess, in. Oh, man. Different, yeah, uh huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, making my final decisions here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which: help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result, we've got to do the comparative work and admonish and exhort and plead with the church, listen, sound doctrine matters. That's not because I think so. It's because what Scripture teaches. False doctrine actually sends people to hell. Christianity is not just some kind of a moral code that you just apply to your life and presto blamo, you're, you're, you're in good with God. In fact, that's the opposite of Christianity. Christianity teaches that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself, that you are dead in trespasses and sins, and that God has to regenerate you. You have to be born again. And that happens through the preaching of God's word, the preaching of law and gospel, and more specifically, the word of Christ, the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again on the third day for your justification. And uh, with all the weird stuff going on in churches nowadays, uh, there's messages being preached that uh, really do a good job of packing people into a building, but are completely powerless to save. And in fact, they work against work against the work of the Holy Spirit that these people claim are, is guiding them to do the things that they're doing. And as a result of what's going on, well, we've got to stop pause the tape, re re rewind it, listen again, and go, wait a second. That's not what God's Word says. We do that a lot of times. And we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. So, I mean, that's what this program is all about. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. There were two stories I did not get to yesterday that I wanted to get to. Number one, uh, Joel Osteen, uh, his uh, recent appearance just a couple nights ago on Piers Morgan's program, and uh, it, uh, listen, Joel Osteen's kind of a, a known quantity. Um, you know, it, it, he's he has about the theological fortitude uh, as well. Um, 
uh, well, a jellyfish, um, as um, well as mucus. Yeah, he's he has that much backbone to him. So, yeah, we know about that. But, you know, we'll, we'll play the uh, Joel Osteen update music regardless. But I'm really more after this because of what Piers Morgan said. Uh, and then uh, I got a story out of Saddleback. Well, actually, a, a piece out of Saddleback that I want to read to you on Centering Prayer that appeared at the Pastors.com website and uh, was promoted and tweeted out by Rick Warren. Kind of shows you where they're at. And uh, and then what we are going to do, um, if, once we are finished with that segment, we're going to take our break and then come back. And we're going to listen to Mark Driscoll being interviewed by uh, Pastor Doug Wilson. The topic of discussion in the uh, in in this interview has to do with the the gifts of the Holy Spirit and cessationism. And got to tell you, it's rather interesting to watch what's going on with uh, Mark Driscoll on this particular topic. And the reason why is because there's no real debate going on with the other point of view being uh, correctly. Um, uh, represented or at least being allowed to represent itself. As a result of it, there's some things that just fall short in this interview. And I'm going to give the last word on this one to uh, Michael Horton of the White Horse Inn, who's actually responded on this on the uh, White Horse Inn blog. And then after that, uh, we'll take a break. And when we come back uh, for our sermon review, we're going to be listening to the very, very, very first sermon preached at Mars Hill Bible Church after Rob Bell's departure. It wasn't preached by Shane uh, uh, Shane Hips. It was preached by a, a gentleman by the name of Dan Allender of Mars Hill Graduate School in Seattle, Washington. Uh, the guy's a psychologist, and I got to tell you, this was just bizarre. And uh, if this is a you know a, a con- an idea of what's going to happen as far as the preaching there at Mars Hill Bible Church, uh, now that uh, Rob Bell is gone and Shane Hips is in you know is you know kind of calling the shots, <laughs> you need to pray for the folks there at Mars Hill Bible Church. They are being fed just bizarre, almost New Ageish, creepy, weird stuff. And well, we all knew that that would be the case. They were already being fed that, but uh, you know it's. It's just patently got worse. So, you know, that's what we're going to do in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So we got a lot, a lot, a lot of ground to cover today. And, uh, you know, fuzzy bunny slippers, if the weather is uh, good in your neck of the woods, just if you're new to Fighting for the Faith and you wonder what the whole fuzzy bunny slipper thing is, think of it this way. This is, it's um, because uh, everybody's all about experiences, you know. Um, you know, these seeker-driven churches are always talking about come, and, come to our worship experience. You know, I, I've decided that uh, I think it's important, too, that I follow suit. And so, therefore, we want, you know, we want to enhance your listener experience while listening to Fighting for the Faith. So this is all about the Fighting for the Faith listener experience. And so what we've done is, is that we've discovered several different ways that to at least enhance the, uh, your experience while listening to Fighting for the Faith. One is if you wear fuzzy bunny slippers. Now, I've actually tried this myself. I have a fantastically wonderful, comfortable pair of uh, funny fuzzy bunny slippers that I received as a gift from a listener, uh, just, in fact, just about a year ago. And you know, I'm, con- I'm going to tell you from personal experience, okay, that while listening to Fighting for the Faith, if you are wearing fuzzy bunny slippers... Th- and the temperature has to be right just to kind of enjoy that because they do kind of tend to be warm. But I got to tell you, it t- 
totally enhances your listener experience. Another way to enhance your listener experience is to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith. We have absolutely no problem with that. Jesus drank. Jesus turned water into wine. I mean, you kind of get the idea of what's going on there. But there is a biblical prohibition against drunkenness, so we always want to admonish people. Listen, you don't want to become enslaved to a gift. That's, well, it's just silly. So, you know, those are two ways to, you know, enhance your listener experience. So feel free to kick up your feet, put your fuzzy bunny slippers on, crack open an adult beverage, and sit down and enjoy, listen, take notes, and, uh, and, and let's dive into the program. Here we go. The good ship, lollipop, it's a sweet trip to a candy shop where bonbons play on the sunny beach of Peppermint Bay. Lemonade stands everywhere, cracker jacks, bands, belly air, and there you are. Happy landing on a chocolate bar. Oh, yeah, that's right. This is our uh, Joel Osteen update music. We're going to be doing a Joel Osteen update here. Uh, Joel Osteen recently appeared on uh, on Piers Morgan's program. And um, and the, the quote of the night really doesn't come from Joel Osteen. I mean, this is the typical evasive, I want to make everybody happy, please everybody, don't offend nobody, Joel Osteen. But it's Piers Morgan who has the quote that just is, well... It really explains the mentality of what it is that the culture, what the world expects of the church. And uh, it's it's just, well, here, listen in. Here's Piers Morgan. Is homosexuality a sin in your eyes? Yes, I've always believed, Piers, the scripture shows that it's a sin. But, you know, I'm not one of those that are... Now, what he's doing is he's playing a a past interview on Piers Morgan's program. So this is Joel Osteen on Memorex. While being interviewed live at, on Piers Morgan's program. Does that make sense? Yeah, let's continue. Out there to bash homosexuals and tell them that they're terrible people and all that. So, I suppose the obvious question is, we did that back in January. Has your position changed at all after that? Because it raised a lot of headlines, a lot of controversy. Since then, more states have endorsed same-sex marriage. It's because- yeah, notice the expectation. So, that's what you said back then. And... And uh, so now the question is, have you gone home and rethought your position and, and reconsider it in light of recent events yeah, and, and come back and modified your particular position regarding homosexuals and uh, the, uh, the right for them to get married? Yeah, so that's the idea, you know. <laughs> Coming much less of a prohibitive kind of issue than it used to be. What's your view now? You know, Piers, it really never changes because mine was mine's based out of the scripture. That's what I believe that the scripture says that that homosexuality is a sin. So, it, you know, I believed it before. Yeah, it's just kind of weird. Uh, Joel Osteen claiming that his position doesn't change because it's based on the scripture. Yet uh, he's completely modified the Christian message that's in. It doesn't even preach the Christian message that's in the scripture. But he's correctly pointed out that hey, the Bible does say that homosexuality is a sin, and it is. And, and you know, it doesn't stop there, though. The, the good news is this. Christ bled and died for that sin. And so, you know, you know, so Christ is literally offering full and free forgiveness and pardon to homosexuals, to adulterers, to thieves, to murderers, to liars, to those who disrespect and dishonor their parents, to idolaters. I mean, 
I mean, God's grace is being offered to sinners of all stripes. You know, it doesn't matter what the particular penchant for your sin is. Christ has bled and died for that, and he's calling you to repent. Confess your sin. Be forgiven on account of his shed blood on the cross for you. Now, I'd, I'd love to hear Joel Osteen actually talk about that, but... <clears throat> it gets a little too negative, but so I think it's funny. So Piers Morgan has once again steered Joel Osteen into a conversation regarding that thorny, vexing, currently popular uh, debate regarding homosexual marriage. And, and Joel Osteen is standing his ground biblically. Yay, Joel. Okay. And I still believe it now. Again, I would just reiterate what I said. I'm not after, I'm not mad at anybody. I don't dislike anybody, but, you know, you know, respecting my faith and believing, you know, in in what the scripture says, that's the best way I can interpret it. But, I mean, shouldn't the scripture be dragged kicking and screaming into the modern age? I mean, we're talking- now, that's the quote. <laughs> Listen to this. This is the expectation of the world. Piers Morgan has just clearly and unequivocally and concisely uh, stated it. Okay, this is what the culture expects from Christianity. Listen again. But I mean, shouldn't the scripture be dragged kicking and screaming into the modern age? I mean, we were talking before the break about the issue about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Not everything in the scriptures really is, in my view, conducive to modern life. I mean, like everything else, doesn't it have to move with the times? And isn't it down again to people like you to interpret it in a way that evolves? I mean, you're, you're known as a very progressive Preacher. So there it is. <laughs> and he, the, the irony is, is that he's asking Joel Osteen this question. Okay. Because if anybody's guilty of, quote, evolving the message, you know, basically modifying the message of bringing it into the, quote, modern age and being very progressive in the way he does that, it's Joel Osteen. And um, I think Piers Morgan gets that. But l- l- that, ac- l- that expectation, the world and the culture at large expects pastors to bring the Bible kicking and screaming into the modern age and reinterpret it and evolve it. Can't do that. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The truths that are revealed in Scripture are eternal truths. And as the U.S. culture devolves into paganism and continues to spiral into rank, rank hedonistic sin, its expectation is is that they want the church, they want pastors in the Christian church who are going to evolve the Christian message, bring the Bible kicking and screaming into the modern age in order to create the illusion that God approves of what they are doing. That's what the world wants. And that's one of the reasons why so many churches are growing because their pastors are all too willing to evolve the message, to bring the Bible kicking and screaming into the modern age and reinterpret it in light of the culture's desires, the culture's ever-increasing taste and lust for the next most perverse sin. 
They want God to approve of their sin. That's what's going on here. And so Piers Morgan nailed it. I mean, just absolutely nailed it. I mean, thank you, Piers, for really just clearly and concisely demonstrating for us what it is that the culture wants. Any Christian pastor who truly believes the Bible must and is absolutely required by God to not give one inch to what the culture wants. Because what the culture wants is to send itself to hell. They have to, every Christian pastor who's been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name must remain faithful to the foolish message, foolish by the world standard, standards of the gospel, and give people what they need. Because it's only the unadulterated gospel, only the unadulterated message of Christ and him crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification that has any power to save anybody. You give the culture what you, what they want. You evolve the Bible. You bring the Bible kicking and screaming into the modern age and you've gutted it of all of its power. And it is absolutely powerless to save anybody, yourself or your hearers, and will send them to hell. They'll feel good about themselves. They'll feel like, wow, God approves of what I'm doing in a sinful way. And then when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, they will hear those words from him that no human being should ever hear. Because it's not God's will that any should perish. But they will hear from Christ, depart from me. I never knew you. Into the fire prepared for the devil and all of his angels. This is what Christ teaches. That's the message. So no, if you give the if you give the culture what they want, you bring the Bible kicking and screaming into the modern age and you evolve the message, you lose the gospel. And you lose the power to call sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Fascinating, fascinating interview. Anyway, that, that's what I just wanted to pass along there. It's now time for your New Age meditation update, complete with Christian language designed to make it look like it's biblical when it's not. Of course, this is uh, one of this is a ministry of Saddleback Church. <clears throat> this music is making me sleepy. Don't go into the light. Uh, wait, wait. <laughs> Kill the music. <laughs> By the way, just so you all, if, if you just want to know, that was the New Age Merlins, the magic chakra meditation music, uh, Heart of Riki. Riki is right. It, Riki of uh, New Agey. Anyway, um, the, the headline here from pastors.com. This would be the uh, pastoral... Uh, resource website uh, put together by Saddleback Church and uh, Rick Warren. The uh, the name of the headline reads, Centering Prayer Trusts Jesus Brings Transformation. Centering Prayer um, Trusts That Jesus Brings Transformation. Now, I, I, 
this doesn't sound like anything to do with like Christian prayer at all. It doesn't sound like anything to do with the way Jesus taught us to pray. For instance, I mean, if the disciples, when they came to Jesus, okay, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray, okay, notice that Jesus didn't say, all right, now what I want you to do is to get yourself into the lotus position, clear your mind, repeat these words or anything like that. He said, no, no, no. When you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Notice that your mind and your heart are both engaged, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you're asking God for specific things. Your brain is engaged. Well, Listen to this, okay? This is so. This is a resource made available by uh, Rick Warren, and uh, the uh, so centering prayer trusts Jesus brings transformation. <clears throat> a healthy spiritual life is an important part of overall wellness. Wellness, wellness. Hmm. It sounds like one of those new age things. Anyway, an active and healthy faith life means that we are concerned with something larger than ourselves. Okay. It also means most often that we are part of a community of people with similar beliefs and priority to ours. Well, that's weird. You know, all the work I've been doing on um, <clears throat> uh, fascism, it's just weird here because you know, the fascists are obsessed with community. And by the way, you know, Peter Drucker, he didn't believe that individuals existed in at least time and space here. that Only the community existed. Isn't that weird? Anyway, so here we got uh, the centering prayer begins with um, the centering prayer thing begins with kind of a something that has to do with irrational philosophy, has something to do with this, uh, the individual not it mattering, but the community mattering. Weird, isn't that? And so, let, let, I mean, let's see if this uh, thing really is biblical here. But anyway, all right, so it also means most often that we are part of a community of people with similar beliefs and priorities to ours. But we sometimes become bored with our normal spiritual routine. One way to add something different to our faith life is to try a practice called centering prayer. Centering prayer is an ancient form of prayer that is a combination of prayer and meditation. The practice was revived in the 1960s and 70s by three Cistercian monks. By the way, I'm reading from pastors.com. This is a resource made available by Rick Warren. Did I mention that this was a resource made available by Rick Warren? So they're they're basically from I'm reading from the page here on their website. Centering prayer is an ancient form of prayer that is a combination of prayer and meditation. The practice was revived in the 1960s and 70s by three Cistercian monks. Now Correct me if I'm wrong here, but wouldn't a Cistercian monk be part of one of the orders of Roman Catholicism? Why are we, um, why is a um, Protestant evangelical flagship church like, well, Rick Warren's church and his resources that he makes available to pastors, why are they recommending a, an ancient Roman Catholic form of prayer? developed by Roman Catholic Cistercian monks. Hmm? Anyway, we continue. So the practice of centering prayer allows for the recognition of thoughts, 
and gently releases them into the hands of God. Okay, so apparently you can you can gently release thoughts. So here, God, I'm going to gently release this thought to you. Here we go. There, see, I just released it gently to you, Lord. Anyway, this form of prayer relies on the awareness that the Holy Spirit resides in the one who prays, connecting them heart to heart with God. You got any Bible passages that say this? Anyway, so how do you begin the practice of centering prayer? Again, I'm still reading from pastors.com. First, set aside a minimum of 15 minutes. Increase the time as you can. Set a timer, if that helps, to be less concerned about when to stop. Settle into a comfortable position. Maybe the lotus position, you know. Anyway, intentionally, now this is the fun part. Intentionally place yourself in the presence of God in the center of his love. What does that sentence mean? Place yourself in the presence of God in the center of his love. Well, where is the center of his love? How do I place myself into that? Do I just imagine it inside of my head? Go, okay, I'm going to imagine myself in the magical land of of centering prayer. And in the magical land of centering prayer, there's ponies and unicorns and rainbows. And somewhere off in the distance, I see a lake. And it's very calm. And look, right next to the lake, there's a big bullseye with a heart in the middle of it. And so I'm going to I'm going to gently float myself over there and I'm going to place myself in the center of the heart target and voila, now I know I'm in the center of God's love. What is this? I mean seriously, intentionally this is what it says, intentionally place yourself in the presence of God in the center of his love. You know what? Hang on a second here. You know, I I, I realize I'm doing this wrong. I, I I apologize here, folks. Um um, if we're gonna be doing centering prayer, we we might need to add the uh, New Age Merlin's magic chakra meditation music heart of Reiki. Here. Oh yeah, this is much better. <clears throat> How do you begin this practice of centering prayer? Again, I'm reading from the Pastors.com website. Set aside a minimum of. 15 minutes. Increase the time as you can. Set a timer if that helps you to be less concerned about when to stop. Settle into a comfortable position. Then, intentionally place yourself in the presence of God, in the center of His love. Then choose a simple word or a phrase or a verse from scripture that expresses your desire for God. For example, you can use the words love, peace, grace, Jesus, great shepherd let this word guard your attention now take time to be quiet it's not unusual for the first minutes to be filled with many noisy thoughts don't worry about them don't pay attention to them let them go 
Now gently return your attention to the center of God's presence and love by repeating the scripture that you selected. Let the verse draw your attention back to Jesus. Be with Jesus. Listen. Be still. Yeah, I think the uh, the music kind of makes the point. Where is this? Where is any of this taught in Scripture? It isn't. This is literally Eastern meditation, stripped of its Eastern words with Christian words thrown into it. But it's the same principle: clearing your mind, meditating, repeating the word over and over and over. That's mantra meditation. This has absolutely nothing to do with the type of prayer and meditation on scripture that the Bible teaches, like nothing to do at all. This, In fact, this is hostile to biblical Christianity and to true Christian prayer. Let me continue reading here. We're, we're past the actual part where we, <clears throat> you know, you practice the centering prayer. But so the person then here goes on to explain more about this. Because centering prayer is a way of being with Jesus that doesn't cover prayer concerns. Really, where in the Bible does it say you can do this and just be with Jesus? You know, when I when I'm with Jesus, I mean, I don't like to do it the New Age way. I, I, you know, if I'm going to be with Jesus, I, you know, we kick it on the couch while playing Xbox. I don't play Xbox, but I mean, I said that just to kind of point out the fact this whole thing is ridiculous. This is absolutely crazy. Because centering prayer is a way of being with Jesus that doesn't cover prayer concerns, some people wonder if it counts as real prayer. Furthermore, if it doesn't make you feel or experience something particular, what does it do? Yeah, It makes me feel something particular. It makes me feel angry that people are being fed this Eastern meditation as if it's Christianity when it's not. Sorry, that's what it makes me feel. Um, It's never possible to judge the value of any prayer based on feeling or experience alone. Experiences are not the point. In centering prayer, the goal is is to so dwell in Christ that the fruit of this dwelling begins to show up in your life. Centering prayer may do nothing at the moment. You sense no rapture, no mystical bliss. But later, as you move out into the business of life, you begin to notice that something has shifted. Your quiet center in Christ holds, centering prayer, trust that being with Jesus brings transformation. It trusts, really, it's so centering prayer trusts that being with Jesus brings transformation. You got any passages in the Bible that say anything of the sort? In fact, you can't find a single passage that teaches anything like this. This sounds like the same kind of stuff that the Buddhist monks do. And what's really funny, I was re- <laughs> I was reading in uh, uh, the sermons, uh, the homilies of John Chrysostom. Oh, man. <laughs> Talk about sublime and brilliant. Absolutely. <laughs> it, 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 I've been reading through his homilies on the Gospel of John. They are fantastic. If you have a, if you have a, a the means of getting a hold of the copy of you know like the ancient church fathers and the um, 
the sermons, the homilies of uh, John Chrysostom, you've got to get them. But in, I think it's in his uh, sermon on John, on, uh, where he goes into John chapter one. He takes a shot at the people who meditate like this, and he calls them dumb rocks. That's what he calls them, dumb rocks. And uh, that's uh, seriously, this isn't prayer. This turns you into just a dumb rock sitting there in your comfortable position, imagining yourself in the land of fairies and ponies and unicorns, and somehow the Care Bears come along and, and place you in the center of God's love, and they, you're just dwell there and be there and all this kind of stuff. And, 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 and so it says, centering prayer, trust that being with Jesus actually brings transformation. Yeah, well, you can trust that all you want. In fact, you can trust that the moon is made out of green cheese or blue cheese and would taste good on a salad. That doesn't mean that it would actually be the case. This is tra trust that is misplaced because God never, ever in his word says that you can do anything like this. This is strange fire. This is Eastern Buddhist meditation stripped of its Eastern Buddhistness and thrown basically with Christian words and stuff thrown on top of it. This is not Christianity. This is not how the Bible teaches us to pray. This is nowhere taught in scriptures. This is absolutely deadly. If you're going to pray, do what Jesus said. Say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's real Christian prayer. And if you want to, add, if you want to pray more, you want to really learn how to pray, open up the Psalms and start praying the Psalms. They read like prayers, and they are prayers, and they teach you how to pray. But not one Psalm will ever tell you to Close your eyes, get comfortable, and put yourself in the land of care bears and ponies and unicorns and put yourself in the presence of God. Nowhere does the Bible teach this. This isn't Christianity that Rick Warren and Pastors.com is promoting. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here you're listening to fighting for the faith you're listening to pirate christian radio we'll be taking your false doctrine now <laughs> Church. And now presenting for your listening pleasure, 
Majestic Mystery by Brian McLaren, read by Reginald Bumper Scatter. Oh, Majestic Mystery. Oh, Mysterious Majesty. My small hand can never grasp you. I can only hold it open. I don't like this oh, at all. Majestic <laughs> mystery. I, I think I'm going to be sick. Oh, mysterious. He's saying words, but I'm not even sure it's English. Small mind. Ah! My appendix just turned inside out. Someone help that poor man and call the paramedics. What's all this then? That poor man appendix is just turned inside out. Well, that doesn't sound good. It's not every day that people appendixes do that. What was he doing? Listening to the emergent poet on stage. He didn't tell me there was emergent poetry being read. Right. Everybody evacuate the building immediately. What seems to be the trouble? Somebody in that building is reading emergent poetry. Have you set up a soundproof perimeter? No, I haven't had time. Oh, we can't help you then. What do you mean you can't help us? Too dangerous. Too dangerous? Don't get cheeky with me. You've seen but a small taste of emergent poetry's destructive power. It only gets worse with each passing stanza. Game over, dude! Game over! Quick, get that man into quarantine. His soul's been sucked out from his nostrils. Isn't there anything you can do to help that poor man? Afraid not. The only answer we have now is to nuke the site from orbit. Search the area and make sure no one's hiding in the refrigerator. We can't have any survivors. It's been nice serving with you, Chief. Likewise. Can't believe the world's come to this. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap.
Warning, when you bring Eastern meditation into the church, I'm going to call it what it is, satanic spiritism. That's what it really is. This has nothing to do with Christianity. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons One says donate, the other says join our crew. The join our crew button, what happens is you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the uh, work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you click on the donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460. Okay, now this next segment, um, this is going to be an interview with uh, uh, by a guy by the name of Doug Wilson, and uh, he's interviewing Mark Driscoll, and they're talking about spiritual gifts and interpreting strange happenings. And uh, here's the problem with this. Uh, once again, Driscoll isn't, well, he's not correctly um, defining what the other position really truly believes and as a result of it he's created something of a straw man and he's not really straight up dealing with what is going what's you know what people like horton and others or even you know uh phil johnson actually believe when it comes to cessationism so yeah you're and i'm so as a result of this i'm going to play part of this interview so you can kind of hear what's going on here and then i'm going to uh, read for you michael horton's response from the white horse inn blog and give uh, Michael Horton the last word. Here we go. In the run-up to this conference, uh, there, uh, oh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, there was a internet dust-up that happens from time to time. I've heard about things I've heard, on the I've internet. Heard about those. And now he's talking about the uh, pornographic visions um, dust-up that occurred on the internet. I, I've heard that you were involved in one of them. Yeah. Um, one of the um, controversies, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about has to do with cessationism, non-cessationism, revelatory gifts. Mm-hmm. The, refor- the Reformed world, the Calvinistic world, um, has historically not been big on that. On, mm-hmm. um, yeah, since Warfield especially. Right. So um, do you see the Reformed world divided neatly into cessationist, non-cessationist groups? Or do you think it's more complicated than that? Uh, would you say cessationist? non-cessationist, cessationists who believe the world is a weird place. Mm-hmm. Um, but what sort of categories do you have when, you, when you're thinking about the experiences that you've talked about and some of the people yeah. who have talked about you having them? Yeah. Um, how do you, where do you, what shelf do you put them on in your mind theologically? Yeah, I see when it comes to the issues of the supernatural and what we call the charismatic, it's, it's like a dimmer switch in a room. In the reform world, there's a whole range, you know, so there's the guys over here like the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Bible, you know, <laughs> they don't even know what to do with a third guy, you know, so they just sort of, you know, uh, and then uh, all the way over to the other side where full-blown, charismatic, Pentecostals, predestined before the foundations of the world to speak in tongues a lot, you know, uh, all right. All right. there's that whole range and... Um, 
And the guys over here think anybody who's not here is here. Right. And so they're, they're scared. And then, and then and traditionally, you know, or at least more recent, modern, you know, charismatic theology, now you're like prosperity and egalitarianism and a guy in a white suit whose wife looked like she lost a paintball gun war. And, you know, you're like, oh, and they're on TV taking their 46th offering for their jet, you know, because uh, their flat screen broke. You know, and you're like, oh, I don't know if that's what charismatic means. And, you know, there's yeah. an overreaction. But, um, but, but my belief is that... Uh, that the Bible is not a cessationistic book and that exegetically you have to do origami to cease certain gifts. You have to do almost, in essence, this will be controversial unlike some other things I've said, um, you almost have to do to like speaking in tongues what the homosexuals do to other verses. Okay. So what do you do? How can you affirm that the Holy Spirit is still active and alive? What do you mean? How can I affirm? How can you affirm that? And like, I don't, like, how can I affirm that? Like these boots are on. Like they are. Uh, I was going to finish the question. Okay. 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 Yeah. How can you affirm that the Holy Spirit is active and alive among His people today, and and operative and doing these things, and that the Bible is a closed book? We are not waiting for volume two or volume three or volume yeah. four. How, how can you have the Holy Spirit operative in a way that doesn't challenge the revelatory uniqueness of the scripture? So right. the, the people on the this far end of the dimmer switch are people who are oftentimes cons- very concerned about mm-hmm. the Holy Bible. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? we, we don't want anybody adding to that. So how, how do you assuage their fears if you can? Yeah, I mean, I like the Bible. Okay, that's a, that's a start. <laughs> and uh, for me, I came to uh, a non-cessationistic position reading the Bible. Okay. It's the same way I came to a reformed position. Um, I don't think anybody's you know born a Calvinist. Right. Um, you you got to learn some things. Um, and so for me, it came through biblical study. Um, but in that, what you're really dealing with is the historical issue that goes all the way back to B.B. Warfield in the Princeton School, where when he went to write his book on inerrancy, his fear was, if we have any other form of revelation that could undermine the authority of inerrancy, and so in an effort, I believe, to preserve the integrity of inerrancy, he essentially sought to obliterate or diminish other forms of revelation. Um, And I think, you know, the, the analogy I use in book like Doctrine and such is, I mean, I hold a verbal plenary inerrancy and <clears throat> I hold a sola scriptura. Um, and as you said today, totus scriptura. But in that as well, the Bible is the supreme court of highest authority. But the Bible itself does speak of other forms of revelation. Okay. So now we're into the category of revelation. I mean, we all agree God speaks through creation. Mm-hmm. Romans 1, Psalm 19. Romans 2, God speaks through conscience. Um, God also speaks through common grace. I mean, this solid reformed Calvinist, like, we believe that, that, you know, we go into the guy who's going to tune the car and we don't expect him to go to Leviticus. You know, we expect him to work from common grace to figure out, you know, why we have a misfire in the third cylinder. Uh, as well, we see in the Bible, angels, dreams, revelations. I'm not saying these things are normative and I'm not saying when they happen, they're always from the Lord. First uh, John says to test the spirits because not every spirit comes from God. First Corinthians 14 says, if you think God gave you a word, run it by the leaders. 
And, and the problem is when you differentiate between uh, spiritual character or fruit, like Galatians calls it, being under spiritual authority and a spiritual gift, when you just look at the spiritual gift and you're not asking, but are they under spiritual authority and are they manifesting spiritual fruit? That's when people are dangerous. Because okay. they just say, God told me. And you're like, oh, so now you're an authority unto yourself. And that's, that's completely antithetical to the Bible. We need to be under authority with godly character. How, how would you handle the uh, Deuteronomy 18 test? If, someone... yeah, if something doesn't come true, true, false prophet, hit him with a crowbar. Yeah, um, okay. kind of one and done. That's a simple way to deal with certain guys, though. Right. Like, you know, like, uh, something they, they can understand. Yeah, right. and, and that, to me, that is the issue of someone prophesying or someone making a declaration like Harold Camping. Right. Like, you know, he just, he just keeps, you know, Suppose guessing it, the end of the world. So if Harold, Harold Camping said, well, I believe the uniques of the Bible and prophets today are only right 90% of the time. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe it. I believe that Deuteronomy 18 says, if you're going to say, thus saith the Lord then it has to come to pass or you need to be quiet forever. You need to repent. Yeah, you need to repent and acknowledge and own that. But what I get more is I'll get dreams or revelations or hear something and, I, and then I'll bring that by spiritual authority to ask, you know, the elders in my church in particular, do you believe this is from the Lord? And if so, I want to test that. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, this will probably freak you out. You probably didn't know this. Not that even just having, here didn't, having me here didn't freak you out a little bit. But... Um, <laughs> What's cool when we hang out is it's hard for the bloggers to know which one's the controversial one. So, That's right. Uh, so, uh, I just wanted to thank you publicly yeah, yeah, for that opportunity. You're, so, you're very welcome, and a note to the public, we did it on purpose. <laughs> Doug needs to look moderate. Let's go get Mark. Okay. Uh, so I'll give you a specific case example, specific case, because you could talk in theory. Um, but a specific case example, I was, a, I was a brand new Christian, God saved me at 19, and I got invited to the men's retreat. And Doug Busby was teaching for me free, and you were teaching, and I think your dad taught, and a couple other guys taught, and so a bunch of the churches came together. I think we went to Camp Wooten. Um, and so I uh, went to Camp Wooten. I'd never been to a men's retreat. A bunch of guys were singing. We're in the woods. It was good. I had a great time. I was really encouraged, and um, I went for a walk, and, uh, and God talked to me. And he told me four things. He said, uh, Mary Grace, preach the Bible, plant churches, and train men. God spoke to me. Okay? Um, and that's what I've been doing. So I got my family, Mars Hill Church, uh, Acts 29 Network, and Resurgence. Okay. That's what I've been doing. That's what I've been doing since I was 19. And you've been doing that because... God told me to. God told you to. You're doing what God said to do. Yeah, and so there's times where it's like, I would like to quit. I would like to drive a bread truck. I would like to get a job as a mattress tester. Like, you know, <laughs> you've right. had those days. Yeah. But to me, it's like, no, this is what Jesus told me to do. So if I went to you at that age 19 and, and I said, Pastor Doug, I'm not trying to be a kook. You know, I, I'm not, I don't have a word for the world, but I feel like God spoke to me and this is what he said. What would you have said to me as a 19-year-old kid? bringing it to my elder. Seattle never work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what, what would you tell a guy? Yeah. I guess the, the question, I would probably not tell you anything. I would probably ask some questions. Okay. All right. I would say, well, um, if you came to me and said, everyone, if you um, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, or God created the heavens and the earth right mm -hmm. out of the Bible, 
what you're telling me that God told all of us obligates belief on my part. Oh, absolutely. Right? But when you tell me that God spoke to you, I have the right to think to myself, I don't know, or, let's, or we'll see. Or, yeah. in other words, the test that you test, in a, you test in the way that you don't test the Bible. Right, the, right. Right. You test whether the person's exegesis is right. Right. But if it's... Test whether the person's exegesis is right. Yeah, the one claiming to be receiving a vision from God. Um, think vision-casting, seeker-driven pastors. Yeah. If uh, they're constantly preaching self-help, pep talks, felt needs, anti-doctrinal type sermons, they didn't hear from God. If it's there... It's binding on all of us. God, God's word is, is binding. So if you, um, if you came and, and told me these things, and I've seen many spooky things uh, happen as well, and this is what I meant, and, I, and I'm as a, speaking as a cessationist, but I don't believe the world in which we live is an ordinary world. I think it's a magical place. All sorts of screwy things happen. Mm -hmm. So... My, the categories in my mind are more than able to take what you said and say, this is, it, I don't have just Jesus told him directly, audibly, the same way he talked to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, or it's demons. I, I, those yeah. aren't the only... And it seems to me that in some of the conflicts online that I've seen where cessationists are attacking... Yeah, when they're like, maybe Satan told him to preach the Bible. Probably not. Probably not. You know? Mary Grace, certainly not. Preach, right? plant churches. Like if he was like, hey, marry the guy and plant mosques, he'd be like, I think you dialed the wrong number. You know, but marry the pastor's daughter and preach the book. That seems right. like something he'd say. Okay. So, um, all right. Then you leave, you leave room for that. Okay. Um, the Lord gives guidance. Let's say I wake up one morning and I just have a burden for somebody mm -hmm. in the church. It's... And it's not propositional revelation, but I have a burden for someone, and if I call them, and they said, oh, I was praying you would call. Well, you know, what is that? That's the um, Holy Spirit leading, guiding. One, one time I, I, I wrote on this when we were in, in this controversy. I was uh, involved in a, uh, trying to get a, a young lady, a single mom, to prevent her from joining a cult, an evil cult. And... We had been flown to another state to talk to her, and it was like bouncing ping pong balls off a bronze statue. You know, she yeah. was just uh, impervious to. And I showed her how bad the cult was. And all you know, she, I, and it was several days. And I, I got up one morning and was reading in Peter, and Peter said, "False teachers with eyes full of adultery, they seduce the unstable." And as soon as I read that, I knew that she was sleeping with. Okay. A, a guy in this. See, you're cult. a charismatic in denial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for giving me this opportunity to come clean. Yeah. But, <laughs> but no, I'm not. <laughs> you are. You come around. Yeah. One of the concerns is that modern, the Enlightenment has trained us to think. Ah, now if you want to go down that rabbit trail, that I would love to do that. Okay, that's yeah, that's what I want to do. The, <laughs> <laughs> the Enlightenment has trained us to think that the world 
runs just the way the deists. Yeah, it's functional deism. Functional deism, and then God, a triune God created the whole thing, but it's functional deism. Yeah. Just yeah, so at this point, cessationists are somehow equated with, they're being equated with um, functional deists. Again, I'm going to let Michael Horton provide the uh, the the commentary on this, or at least the response, shortly. I want to play a little bit more of it, though. Natural law grinding away. And when you believe, when you accept that, and something quirky ha happens or something odd happens. Like salvation. Like salvation. Which is or, a, a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Right. You, your desires I mean, are all we all, all believe in that one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'll go that far. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that much of a charismatic. <laughs> <laughs> you you yeah. can believe that the world is a magical place. You can believe that the world is a strange place and it's a, world, a weird place. And God does all sorts of things mm -hmm. in it that are not Isaiah, uh, the, the, the next book after Isaiah. You, you're not claiming revelatory no. equality with Scripture. Well, the Bible's the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. So um, going back to your point of the Father, Son, and Holy Bible... Um, you reminded me of uh, Dorothy Sayers once said that she was a, a missionary was talking to a Japanese gentleman trying to explain the, the faith, Christian faith to him and, and said the, tr the Trinity was just very difficult for him and he came back and he said honorable father I understand and honorable son I understand but honorable bird I do not understand <laughs> 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 I, I just don't get that um, <clears throat> apropos of nothing so, so with this it seems to me that, that you can believe that God is active in the world and the cessationists, the, I'll, I'll just say the responsible cessationists, yeah. um, of whom there are many, are, are simply concerned for a theological construct that keeps you from eroding the boundaries of the Bible. That's what, the, that's what they care about. Yeah. They don't care about uh, if you have answered prayer, if George Mueller answered prayer, you know, yeah. they, they, they would glorify God like anybody else. But if you have uh, sort of, let's say, the charismatic, untethered, no breaks, you end up in demonism and spiritual abuse. If you have cessationism, untethered, no breaks, you end up in demonism and rational, or not demonism, you end up in rationalism and deism. Unitarianism. Unitarianism. So, you know... So on the flip side, they can say, well, you don't want to be like that guy over there with a praise banner who, you know, is writing the next book of the Bible. Like, yeah, I also don't want to be like that guy over there who's a Unitarian Universalist because God doesn't do miracles and that means Jesus is still dead. Um, so we need to be, you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. and, and that's human. To me, that's the, that's the result of the modern enlightenment project. It's rationalism, skepticism, empiricism, which ultimately leads to deism and or atheism. It's... So, um, okay, now that's where I'm going to pause. If you want to see, see the rest of it, I would recommend going first to the White Horse Inn blog. You can go to whitehorseinn.org forward slash blog. The name of the blog post is Yes, Virginia, There is a Holy Spirit. And, the, and M Michael Horton has the video embedded there at the White Horse Inn blog. That's where I would recommend viewing this video. It goes on for another 12 minutes, okay? But uh, I would like to, at this point, read Michael Horton's response because I think we've gotten at least through the point where, um, where you know, the, the meat of this conversation is. Michael Horton responds. He says, I was intrigued by a recent conversation between Doug Wilson and Mark Driscoll. I'd prefer to keep my thoughts to myself, but I think there's a crucial piece missing from the, quote, debate. 
As I said in an earlier post, Reformed and Charismatic, I am not willing to die on the hill of cessationism. In fact, I'd fit into the category that Doug Wilson describes as a cessationist who believes strange things happen. A sovereign God is free to fulfill his purposes as he pleases, as God, the Holy Spirit, is not on a leash. However, this misses the point. No Calvinist would believe that the Spirit is not free or that he cannot speak directly to people today as he did in the days of the prophets and the apostles. Nor are Reformed Christians deists for believing that. As a rule, he doesn't. In fact, the church was not guided by anti-supernaturalism when it rejected the claims of the Montanists in the late 2nd century. Nor were Luther and Calvin under the spell of the Enlightenment when they challenged the enthusiasts for pitting the word against the spirit. Great points. The spirit is not bound by anything, but he freely binds himself to his word. The real question is not whether the Spirit may work, but where he has promised to work. Let me read that again. The real question is not where the Spirit may work, but where he has promised to work. If strange things happen, similar to events in the era of the prophets and the apostles, we'll praise the Lord. However, one doesn't have a right to expect the Spirit to work except where he has promised to work and through the means that the triune God has ordained. Like the older charismatic cessationist debates in evangelicalism, this newer discussion, therefore, has the wrong categories. The real issue isn't whether the sign gifts have ceased. It's whether the Spirit works through ordinary means that Christ ordained explicitly or whether he works through extraordinary means that were identified with the extraordinary ministry of the apostles. Even deeper than that, it's a question of whether we embrace a paradigm in which the Spirit's work is identified with direct and immediate activity within us apart from ordinary means or through the external word and the sacraments. The history of enthusiasm, Protestant or otherwise, think, think Pentecostals here, uh, trends toward an almost Gnostic dualism between spirit and matter, indirect and inner experience versus mediated and external ministry, the individual heart and covenant community. This is where the seismic fault is revealed. At It's at this point where the real differences, paradigmatic differences, become evident, and there are plenty of cessationists as well as charismatic who, charismatics who presuppose the enthusiastic paradigm. In this interview, my friend Mark Driscoll expresses his worry that cessationists believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. That may well be, in fact, one of the things I have emphasized, especially in recent years, is the richness of the Holy Spirit's person and work that is actually far more evident in classic Reformed as well as patristic faith and practice than today. The temptation to celebrate the Spirit over the Word in our day is in part a reaction against a conservative tendency to separate the word from the spirit. He has also said elsewhere that where Reformed people attribute God's work to the gospel, charismatics attribute it to the spirit. We talk past each other, he says. I'm not sure. I'm not so sure. Rather, I think we're operating with quite different paradigms. When we attribute God's work to the gospel, it's actually attributing it to the spirit 
who works through the gospel. Great point. The choice between spirit and word is a false one that has typically been forced by Protestant enthusiasm. We do speak past each other, but because we have different paradigms, not just because of different views of whether the sign gifts have ceased. For example, the Heidelberg Catechism asks, where does this true faith come from? Answer, the Holy Spirit creates it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the Holy Sacraments. Who creates it? The Holy Spirit. How? Through preaching the Gospel and by ratifying it through the baptism and the supper. When Reformed people and others speak of preaching, baptism, communion, covenantal nurture in the home, church discipline, diaconal ministry, and so forth, our charismatic brothers and sisters wonder, where is the Holy Spirit? Why? Because they have come to see the Spirit's work as separate from, even antithetical to, the external ministry of the church and ordinary means of grace. Of course, this point doesn't address the issues, much less pretend to solve them. However, my hope at least is that we could have a better conversation than the usual debate question, the sign gifts have ceased, pro or con. Yeah, Michael Horton makes a great point, and from the Lutheran side of it, we would completely agree. The idea here is, is that the work of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, has promised to work through the means of particular things. The preaching of his word, baptism, the Lord's Supper. This is how the Spirit has promised to work. The Spirit has has well, not bound himself, but has promised to work through these means. So if you want to see the Holy Spirit working in your congregation, listen to the preaching. You want to see the Holy Spirit working in your congregation, look to the baptismal font. You want to see the Holy Spirit working in your congregation? Look to the communion rail. God the Holy Spirit is working there. And what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Jesus said when he sends the Spirit, the Comforter, he would convict the world of sin and unbelief. You know the Holy Spirit is working when people's sins are laid bare and they are convicted of their sin and unbelief. And Christ's blood is brought to bear through the preaching of the gospel, and they are brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. God, the Holy Spirit, works through ordinary means. And over and again, when you look at the folks who are have this big debate as to whether or not the Spirit can work uh, you know, in ways that, you know, like speaking directly to a person or whatever. Of course he can. But let's first and foremost acknowledge where the Spirit has promised to work. And let's acknowledge that as truly the work of the Spirit. Let's do that first, and we'll talk about this other stuff that really is extraordinary, at times seems random, and you can't. you and I couldn't make it happen if we tried. You get what I'm saying? Anyway, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of the latest thing in this uh, debate regarding, you know, what the Holy Spirit can and can't do. And I appreciate uh, Dr. Horton's contribution. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. 
if you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. We're going to be heading back to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And, uh, well, you know, check in with Mars Hill Bible Church and see how things are going now that Rob Bell has left. I mean, he laid quite a foundation of false doctrine. Let's see what uh, what they build on that. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Mars Hill Bible Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan, founded by Rob Bell, now pastored by Shane Hips, whom he's been co-pastoring with for a while. But the uh, sermon we're going to be listening to today is the first sermon uh, since the departure of Rob Bell. Delivered by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Dan Allender, the name of the sermon, um, Speaking in Tongues. Supposedly, this is a sermon based upon Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. I don't know who the woman is who ends up reading the, uh, the text, the biblical text, prior to the, uh, the sermon itself, but Dan Allender is, uh, well, famous for, uh, he, he teaches at a school in Seattle entitled Mars Hill Graduate School. And um, he's a Ph.D., author of The Path Less Chosen. Other books include Breaking the Idols of Your Heart, Leading with a Limp, Intimate Marriage Curriculum, To Be Told, you know, stuff like that. Um, He's also taught, by the way, at uh, Willow Creek 
at their leadership summit in 2002. So Dan Allender has made you know the rounds in the greater um, <clears throat> seeker-driven movement. And uh, this is going to be, well, an adventure in missing the point. That's about the best way I can put it. So let me kill the music here without any further ado. Here is Dr. Dan Allender and uh, <clears throat> speaking in tongues. Here we go. Uh, it, is, it is sweet to be with you. Um, it, to be on Michigan soil the day that the Spartans trounce. The dreaded poisonous nuts. <laughs> and to be invited to engage a passage that is um, breathtaking, uh, truly beyond our capacity in one hour, hours, uh, to fully, fully, richly comprehend. Uh, I ask Bree uh, to read that passage on our behalf. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked. Okay. I've just got to point out, uh, <clears throat> you'll notice here that uh, speaking in tongues involves speaking an actual language that people can understand. In other words, the miracle of speaking in tongues is... The ability to speak fluently a language that you don't know, that you didn't learn while growing up. And, uh, you know, for me, it'd be like going to the airport and having an opportunity to share the gospel with a, uh, a family who's from uh, China and they only speak Mandarin. And, of course, I haven't got I have n I don't even know a single word of Mandarin Chinese, but somehow miraculously I'm able to share the gospel with them by being able to speak Mandarin Chinese fluently, even though I've never studied it, never been to a Mandarin Chinese class. Ever. You, you get well, that, that's what's going on here in this text. Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious days of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now, I want to point something out here. Again, the miracle of the ability to speak in a language you don't know uh, was given so that people can proclaim the gospel. Peter stands up and he proclaims Christ and him crucified for our sins. He proclaims Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Who is the sermon about that Peter preached? It's about Jesus. We continue. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the, de- from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers and sisters, we all know that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he... Again, who is the sermon about? It's about Jesus, at least, you know, the Peter's preaching of it. I wonder what uh, <clears throat> uh, this guy's going to do with it. He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord, our God, will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That passage... uh, has to be heard uh, as one of the 
beginning inaugural birthday events of the church. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, right out of the shoot, uh, the church preaches Christ and him crucified for our sins, calls people to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it, th- th- I completely agree. Inaugural event, bingo. The primary th- uh, thrust of that event, the preaching of Christ as the Messiah and him crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. I wonder if you pick that up, Dan. I just, you know, somehow I don't think that's going to happen. It is what defines us. It is what is meant to give us a sense of what it is to gather as the church. So as we think today about this passage, I want you to hear that there are two goals, if if you will, that I have as we enter this word. First is that you would have a greater clarity as to what it means for you to speak in tongues. Uh, What? Um, a, gr- a greater clarity as to what it means for you to speak in tongues. Really, uh, where in this passage does it say that everybody who's a Christian gets to speak in tongues? It doesn't. It doesn't say that at all. Um, so uh, yeah, we got a problem. Plus, there is some really good text that. Well, just make it clear that that's just not really going to happen. Um, and what I mean by that is, if you have your Bible, flip on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 27. Okay, now here's the deal. You'll notice that the genre of the book of Acts is historical narrative. Okay, now in the historical narrative itself, there are places where clear theology is attached to the events that are taking place in the historical narrative. So it there's places where you've got the theological significance of the events that are taking place in the book of Acts itself. However, okay, I want to point something out. Nowhere in the book of Acts are you going to see the expectation that all Christians are to speak in tongues. In fact, if you want to understand the correct theology regarding the gift of tongues, which is one of the sign gifts, um, you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. I'll start there. It says, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually you are members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues or languages. And then a series of questions is asked. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Now, I've pointed this out many times on this program, but it bears repeating here. Okay, It looks like I'm adding things to the biblical text, and I'm not. And the reason I know that I'm not is because I can read Greek. Okay, Koine Greek, there's a particle... It is pronounced may. And when you add that particle to a question that is being asked, it is understood that that particle remains untranslated, but the question that's being asked then is to be understood as being answered in the negative. So, verse 29 begins with me pantes apostoloi, me pantes prophetai, me pantes Didaskoloi, mepantes dunames. So that's the way the questions are. Notice each question begins with may. May means the answer, the question is to be answered is new. The 
The answer is no. So are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. So already we got a problem. Here we got Dr. Dan Allender, who, by the way, is a psychologist. Um, I, as far as I can tell, he's not a theologian. I haven't seen anything that would indicate that he's been properly trained to, well, preach and proclaim God's word. Um, and uh, I, I'm just wondering if he even knows Koine Greek and what he would think of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 29, 30, and 31, which basically asks these series of questions that are to be understood as answered in the negative. And that is, is that, uh, the, so here's the thing, here's the deal. Um, one thing we can say with certainty, as we read the book of Acts chapter 2, and look at the inaugural event of the uh, of the Christian church that that the the ability for the people there to speak in tongues does not we can say with certainty does not therefore mean that every Christian is to speak in tongues why because we have a clear biblical text that says not every Christian speaks in tongues why because god get god the holy spirit gives different gifts to individuals so that there's a, a plethora of gifts that are designed to build the body up. It's, you think of the body as having different body parts. Well, different gifts equal different body parts. So not all our teachers, not all our apostles, not all our prophets, not all speak in tongues, not all administered. There's all these different gifts that are given so that together all of the functions of the church are to be taken care of you get what i'm saying there anyway so yeah we've got uh, we've got a problem here because already right out of the shoot uh dan allender uh, well he's um he's saying something that is not a valid inference it is not a correct teaching it is not exegetically there in the biblical text talking about how we're supposed to all somehow speak in tongues as a result of having read acts chapter two let me back the audio up just a smidge here we go the church. So as we think today about this passage, I want you to hear that there are two goals, if, I, if you will, that I have as we enter this word. First is that you would have a greater clarity as to what it means for you to speak in tongues. If you can leave today confirming in your own heart that even this last week you spoke in tongues, or that it is very possible for any in this room who wish to speak in tongues to be able to do so readily and freely. Uh, this d- biblical text doesn't teach that, and Acts, I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter 12 flat out contradicts what you're saying. In many ways, with great drama, and yet in a very ordinary and normal sense. Uh, as well, what I hope this passage marks for you and for us. Uh, is that this defines what it means to be the church. Mm. Now, what it defines to be the church are those who've been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Notice that when Peter was preaching, the uh, those who heard him, were, they were cut to the heart, right? And their question to Peter is, what shall we do, brothers? What shall we do? Now, notice Peter didn't say, all right, um, Quick, start speaking in tongues. Quick, acknowledge that that you need to be able to speak in tongues. That's not what he said. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins and the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off. So, um, yeah, so there you go. Um, Peter, when asked the question, brothers, what shall we do, didn't come back with the quick start speaking in tongues, acknowledge that you can do that. It was all about repentance and the forgiveness of sins, which should come as no shock, especially if you've read the tail end of the Gospel of Luke, because Jesus himself tells the apostles to go into all the world proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. And wouldn't you know it, right out of the chute, that's exactly what Peter does. So it's all about forgiveness of sins. It's all about what Christ has done for us on the cross, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Not speaking in tongues. In fact, the whole speaking in tongues things was just to get people's attention and to make them listen and to add credibility to the message that Peter was preaching. Okay? Um, I mean, seriously. Um, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable that this is what exegetically this guy's coming up with. As our inaugural birthday story, this passage tells us a lot about what it is to be the church in the midst of trying times financially, personally, corporately. It is indeed how we are to be with one another. And there are three words that you will hear me bring again and again and again. The first word is to be one who speaks in tongues, who lives the Pentecost in the way that we function in our world today, you must be willing to live an unexpected life, one that opens the door to un... Really, uh, where in the passage does it say anything about having the willingness to live an unexpected life? Hmm? I didn't see that anywhere in Acts chapter 2. You just inserted that, didn't you, Dan? You clever guy, you. Usual experiences. Second... You've got to be a, wor a, a person worthy of and willing to be complex. Uh, yeah, again, third, I, um, yeah, I, sorry for interrupting again. I didn't see anything in the text about uh, the willingness to be complex. Don't you think you're over complex, um, com well, adding too much complexity to the passage itself? Because, you know, Peter was obsessed with telling everyone about Jesus. Don't you think you ought to, you know, do the same thing? Kind of would make sense, don't you think? And this I say to you because I know a bit about you, uh, one that you do well just naturally, and that is uh, you cannot live the Pentecost without being strange. Hmm. Where in this text does it talk about living the Pentecost by being strange? Yeah, I didn't see that in the text either. In fact, what's weird is, is that Nowhere else in the New Testament do I read anything about any of the apostles saying, you need to live the Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, like that's like language that's completely foreign to Scripture. You, did you just make that up? And maybe it's one of your psychology terms. Uh, but see, here's the deal. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about living the Pentecost and and the uh, and that somehow you need to assert your will in such a way that you're willing to be strange. Yeah, that's not found in that text either. In fact, it's not found in any text. And you can be blessed already knowing that you have achieved that well. <laughs> what this passage implies is this. God marks the community 
of faith with living in the three days of death, waiting, and resurrection. Not merely as an event, but... Now, now you're allegorizing the historical events surrounding Jesus' passion and resurrection. Um, yeah, that's kind of, um, like, that's a foul. You can't, you can't do that. Um, and Peter didn't do that because when he was talking about Jesus's death and resurrection, he never told anyone to live in that, um, uh, that, uh, you know, that was done for us. So yeah, we got some problems here with this theology. I mean, can you even really call this a theology? This is more like, um, just winging it and making stuff up, having read a text we're now not going to focus on anything that the text actually says. We're just going to start making things up and, and making it look like that's what the text was about. I, but I assure you the text isn't about any of the things that you're saying. So, As well a process cyclically that we all are in at various times. Everyone in this room is living death, mm. waiting for resurrection, and knowing the resurrection. So if I were to ask you what day... Can you define the term living, death, and resurrection in that sentence? Um, somehow I think you're, you're dealing with funny definitions there. Is it for you? Uh, I would hope that you would have a sense of what day are you in today. Mm, it's Friday. In fact, I've been in Friday since about midnight. Knew that too, you know. When I woke up this morning, I looked at my, uh, you know, my alarm clock, and it said Friday, and I knew at that time I was in Friday. Is this a day of death for you? Is this a day? Well, I'm still alive. Um, I mean, it could be. I mean, maybe I'll die before midnight tonight. But so far, this has been a day of life for me. Just, you know, just saying, you know, something I've observed. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing my program. I, if I, I assure you, if I died today, if today was a day of death, poof, yeah, I, I wouldn't be recording my program right now. Just something, it just kind of goes without saying. Of waiting in hell. Or is this a day that you can say is a sweet day, fragrant and alive with the goodness of the presence of God? It is the day of resurrection. Yeah, again, what does this have to do with Acts chapter 2? I'm just not seeing the connection here, like, at all. It's like you're not even trying. And we will be in one of those three days in our marriages, in our friendships, in our parenting, in our finances. We will be in one of those days every day of our life. And you are currently in one of those days. And you as a... Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those days, all right. It's one of those days where I'm reviewing a really stinky sermon that doesn't make a wit of biblical sense. The congregation are in one of those days of loss and waiting. If you can say that today, as a congregation, you are fully into resurrection, bless you, but I don't believe... Yeah, I'm way into resurrection, man. I'm all over that. Yeah. I'm, what does that even mean when I'm saying that, though? If I were to say, yeah, man, I am so into resurrection, man, people look at me and go, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, Dan, uh, Allender talked about that, being into resurrection. Aren't you down with that? Try this, you know, hey, listen, guys, try this line out on, you know, this Sunday. Try it out, you know, when you get together with your buddies to watch football. You know, at what, like halftime. You know, okay, hey, guys, uh, just want to let you all know. 
Okay, you know, and you know, one of one of your buddies would be sticking a you know a Frito into the bean dip, and you know, and you know, you know, taking a chug on a beer, and you say, "Hey, listen, I just want to let y'all go. <laughs> the greatest thing ever. I am so into resurrection. See if you can get out of that living room alive, or if your friends don't take you and just pummel you until you stop talking like that. You, you just you know, believe as an outsider, you can say that." You've already gone through loss, and now you're in a period of time of wondering what will transpire. There are many praying for you. Uh, Kate Geskes, who is one of your congregants, but also a student at the Seattle School where I teach, has a group of about eight people who meet together and have been doing so weekly to pray for you, to ask for blessing upon your congregation, upon your lives. And there are many, many, literally over the world, wondering, watching, but praying for you that you will go through loss and waiting well. And the only way you can do so is by the Pentecost, by the Spirit working in a way in which you feel the wind and the fire and the power of the Spirit of God working in each one of your lives to be willing to go through loss and allow death to be true. I mean, does, do any of these words have like any real definition? I mean, apparently you spiritualized all this stuff. Feel the wind and the power. Yeah, I, I feel the wind and the power from time to time. just depends on what the weather's like outside. But simultaneously, to know what it is to wait without complaint and yet with anticipation, knowing that there is uncertainty that you can't resolve and must... What are we waiting for? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm confused. What, what exactly am I supposed to be waiting for? ...be over time birthed into a very new way for this congregation to live together. And that birthing process will have many agonies to it. But as Shane said a few weeks ago, you're not living for resuscitation. Right. So you're going to have birthing, and uh, but you don't, whatever you do, so if you're going to be birthing something, don't live for resuscitation. You okay. All right, man. Down with resuscitation. I'm I'm all about. I'm way into resurrection, but no, I'm not into resuscitation. Not at all, man. It's there. Simply the continuation of the old into the new is not what you are meant to be about. It is indeed a life that you are to live with the hope that whatever rises new will be transformative, not just for you individually, but for you as a congregation. So we who are from the outside look in and say... Does anybody speak this guy's language? I know it sounds like English, but he may actually at this point be demonstrating what it means to speak in tongues. And what I mean by that is, is I'm hearing words. You know, those are actual words that we're hearing. They're they're English, but I'm so convinced that that all of the words, every single definition, has been so radically altered that uh, there's just no way of knowing what on earth he's talking about. We need an interpreter. Does any do any of you have the the gift of interpreting tongues that sounds like English but isn't English? Bless you that you would live in the presence of the Spirit. 
And what does that look like to live an unexpected life? Yeah, no clue. I don't even know what the words you're using mean, so how can I know what it looks like? It means you must know that God works abruptly. And All right, so I okay, so God works abruptly. Got it. Okay. And I'm way into resurrection, but not into resuscitation. Got it. Many ways that his own way of interaction with us, as the text indicates, is rather sudden. If you actually look back to Acts 1, when did Jesus leave this earth? The implication of the text says this. He was having a meal with his disciples. And he was telling them, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. Wait here in Jerusalem. And when you receive it, you will speak my name. You will be a witness to me here and in Judea and to the very end parts of the earth. The disciples then ask a question. Are you now restoring the kingdom? Are you freeing Jerusalem and Israel? In many ways, saying this, are you freeing us from the bondage of the Romans? And are you returning the kingdom of God now to the earth? And here's Jesus' response. It's not for you to know, but you're going to do amazing things. Bye. That's what the text says. Bye. And he lifts off. He departs. So this is so that we can know about uh, the uh, the theological category of um, divine abruptness. Okay, got it. All right. You're at the meal, and you've asked, frankly, a stupid question. And God's response is, best to you. Do you hear how abrupt and sudden, unexplained and unexpected it is? And then he leaves his disciples approximately, we know, for 10 days. 10 days they wait. We don't know why they're waiting 10 days later at Pentecost in a room. In a- hmm. Maybe they're waiting because Jesus told them to. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's start at the... Uh, book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. In, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he chose. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. See, yeah, Acts 1 verse 4 kind of explains that. So while staying with them, Jesus ordered the disciples, don't depart from Jerusalem. That's why they were there. But wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit uh, not many days from now. So why were they hanging out in Jerusalem? Because Jesus told them to. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus went, oy vey. And No, he didn't do that. <laughs> it's like you could tell. It's like, this is like failing the final. Anyway, I was like, <laughs> so Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice it says that Jesus said to the apostles, you will be my witnesses. So they're to go and witness to the world about Jesus. Yeah, that's why Peter's sermon was about Jesus. My question is, why isn't Dan Allender's sermon about Jesus since he read a sermon about Jesus? doesn't make any sense. Anyway, so when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I I admit that Jesus pretty abruptly went away. You know, just poosh. Okay, yeah. But I don't see anywhere else in the scripture the idea, you know, taken from this historical narrative that now this somehow means that there is a theology of abruptness. It's like to, it's like totally missing the point. I mean, hello. Did you get the get the part about Jesus going into heaven and the angel saying that he's going to come back that same way? And that they're going to receive power from the and be a, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told them to hang out there. And then Acts comes and they and they receive the Holy Spirit with power and speaking languages they'd never even learned before, proclaiming the wonders of God. And then Peter stands up and proclaims Jesus Christ. He's a witness about Jesus. You know, it's you know Jesus. Jesus said, "You'll be my witnesses." That yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> Maybe he's just bored with preaching about Jesus. Maybe he'd prefer to just, you know, hear himself rattle off all these little clever things that he finds in the text that really aren't even there at all. You know, rather than talk about Jesus, let's talk about abruptness. And I am so into resurrection, too, by the way, you know. In a house, but all of a sudden fire comes, wind comes. And they begin to speak not in tongues, but in foreign languages that become communicative. The good that become communicative. Where does it say their languages become communicative? What are you talking about? Goodness of God to others, and three thousand or more join to begin to hear what's happening. I want you to hear the next word as to what it is that the Spirit of God brings when we begin to have the tongues of Pentecost. If you willingly choose an unexpected life, not knowing when endings are going to come, when you're going to be called to wait, or when the day... So when you willingly choose an unexpected life, um, yeah, nothing about that in the text. Again, where are you seeing this again in, in, in there? of resurrection is going to come when he's going to depart when he's going to ask you to wait for 10 days or 10 months and then when the spirit's going to come that's the normative life for everyone who says i wish to follow the spirit of god will you bless the unexpected but will you also name and invite the complex to be part of your world. What? No, I won't. I prefer simplicity. I reject the complex. I, I, too lazy, too old. I, I don't want to have to work at things like that. I want to embrace the simple. You know, Jesus, crucified for my sins, raised on the third day for my justification. I prefer that over the complex. You can take your complex spirit theology and 
and abruptly go somewhere else with it. I'm not interested in it, even though I'm into resurrection. I'm totally into that, man. What this text brings us next is Peter stands to begin to try and put words to this wild theater of redemption. And Peter begins to say, you think these men are drunk. Let me tell you what you're seeing. And he brings Joel into conversation. If we had time, what I didn't... Really, he brought Joel into conversation. Sounds really postmodern. I don't think you really know what's going on in this text. I invite you to do is now open the book of Joel and read the three chapters. Because the reader of this text needs to know Joel in order to richly understand what's happening at Pentecost. Yes, there will be sons and daughters, slaves and free men and women who will all of a sudden speak tongues of vision and in fact will have words from God for one another. Do you believe that that can still happen today? In many ways, it's really a question of, do you believe the Spirit is at work today with the gifts that are comparable to Pentecost? I think the better question is, uh, you know, who do you think Jesus is? Because, um, you know, Peter kind of obsesses about that, pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was crucified for our sins and calls people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I mean, the whole point of the Spirit working on the day of Pentecost was to point everybody to the message that Peter preached about Jesus. You're like totally missing the whole point. Or do you have a view that basically says, those gifts stopped when the apostles departed this earth? I'm not... This doesn't have anything to do with what the Holy Spirit can or can't do. It's about Jesus. Here to argue one view or the other, but it is so important for you to ask the hard question: What is God at work with? What is the depth of how He chooses well, God, to? God's at work with the well, where the gospel is preached. That's where people are brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins and regenerated and born again. That's what God's word says. Go out and proclaiming speaking in tongues ain't going to save nobody. To intersect with our lives. Years ago, I had the opportunity to be in Addis Abba. And as I was there doing a conference on human trafficking, I interacted with a man by the name of Jacob, sitting with his wife, Rachel. And that was literally their names. And I sat and asked him question, how did you get involved in dealing with prostitution in Africa? And human trafficking. And this is the story that he told me. Well, I was going to work one day and I am a Nigerian and I went to work uh, and I worked for the president of Nigeria. As I was about to boot on my computer early one morning, I heard the spirit say to me, don't turn your computer on. Put your resignation in. Go home and tell your wife that you have quit your job. And then I will tell you next what I wish for you to do. The question you have to hear when I tell a story, certainly the question I had to ask as I heard this man tell this story, is, is he telling the truth? Does God speak that clearly? He literally put in his resignation, went home, quite afraid to say to his wife, I just lost one of the best jobs in the country. 
But when he saw her, her face had a glow about it. And she said, no need to explain what you did. The Spirit of God already told me that you were to quit today. They waited a week. And then the Spirit said to them, I want you to go to Burkina Faso. And when you arrive, I will tell you what to do. Weeks later, they had sold their home, packed their two children, and went to Burkina Faso. They arrived at the airport, still not knowing what they were to do. And the Spirit said, get a bus, take tickets, drive. I'll tell you where to get off. They got off four hours from the capital they got a night stay in a... Yeah, this is a fine anecdotal story, but what on earth does this have to do with the text from the uh, book of Acts chapter 2? Like nothing. Home, and the next morning the Spirit said to Jacob, this is what I've asked you to do. Go for a walk this morning, and on this walk I will introduce you to why you are here. He took a walk, and the first woman he encountered was a prostitute. And the Spirit of God said to this man, this is why you are here. Invite her into your home, and then I will tell you how to live your life. That to me is terrifying. The thought that the Spirit of God has the capacity to speak means that I must open my heart to the possibility that he has a very different life for me than what I have chosen to live. Are you really willing to believe? Yeah, why don't you start by believing God's word regarding Jesus and that the Spirit uses the proclamation of the gospel to bring people to repentance, just like in Acts chapter 2. The climax of the story is not the speaking in tongues. That's part of the buildup of the story. The climax of the story is it says that they were cut to the heart or cut to the quick and said, brothers, what shall we do? See, that was the Holy Spirit at work because Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, would convict the world of sin and unbelief. So here we got this miracle, men And women who are dead in trespasses and sins hear the gospel message and they're cut to the heart and God convicts them of their sin and unbelief. And they hear the assuring words of the gospel, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, right? And so what do they do? They had their sins forgiven, Can you talk about that stuff? Because that's what Jesus' death on the cross was all about. Forgiveness of sins. You familiar with the concept? That the word of God has the potential to come through the spirit to utterly change the direction of your congregation or of your life. And that unexpected presence comes not just with words, but with a story. And what is the story of Joel? It is a weird story. It is a story. In- Actually, the Spirit comes with the, the story of Jesus. Man. In chapter 1 about locusts coming to devour the people of God. And then chapter 2, those locusts turn into an army 
that will destroy, literally plunder and rape the people of God. And what makes the story so bizarre is that God says, I am at the front of this army against my own people. I ride with the Babylonians to destroy my own people. And then chapter 2 moves into God's own call for us to repent. But even before we repent, God laments his own turn against his people. And then says, I will bless you. I will make you a people of pleasure, of rich wine and milk and water. And I will bring all the goodness that I have deprived you from. I will repay what the locusts have eaten. It is a passage of God's repentance. A call to our own, but a gift of seeing that God turns in his heart toward us. That's not what theology allows me to say. It is not words that somehow fit well our understanding of how God works. God repents before we do. God's heart turns, though he is the champion at the head of the army of the locust Babylonians. He is also the one who becomes grieved at the prospect of the loss of his love for us. And then he becomes the one who bears the very price. Uh, Are you willing to bear the complexity of this story? Can you go into a little bit more detail about bearing the price? The price of what? Man, this is just so convoluted. No, I'm not embracing any of the complexity because you've over-complexitized it. It's not really a word, but... A story that involves fire. And what's fire? The presence Of Exodus 3, God who shows himself as I am. Wind, the very factor that was there in the creation of the earth. Are you willing to let Babylon be guided by God in your own life? What on earth are you talking about? Am I willing to let Babylon be guided by God in my own life? That doesn't even make any sense. I mean, the sentence, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday, makes more sense than that. Am I willing to let God be... Oh, good night. It it just sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, wow, are you willing to let God be at the head of Babylon in your own life, man? No, I'm not, because I'm embracing resurrection, dude. It's there. To win your heart to be trembling before the God who is opposed to you, who is for you, who dies for you, and yet works to ruin you. Can you explain the part about dying for me, please? Does this make sense to you? No, nothing you've said makes any sense at all. If it does, you're a far brighter man or woman than me. All I can do with this kind of data is... You don't even understand your own sermon, do you? Because there's no, there is no humanly possible way to understand anything that you're saying. To go, it is too much for my mind to comprehend. To have Joel, who's speaking, and then he turns to David and says, David, who you beloved, you see as in many ways the core of your identity as Israel. David is nothing 
in comparison to Jesus. In fact, he prophesied about Jesus. And this is what he prophesied, that he would not see decay, that he would not be held by death. And now we're in the strange portion of this passage. The dilemma of this passage is it moves so richly, deeply, quickly, that almost you have to stand in the wind long enough to begin to have your own life changed. Listen, I don't want to stand in the wind because when I stand in the wind, my hair gets messed up or my hat gets blown off my head or, you know, you know, you get wind, you know, you get leaves blowing in your face and things like that. Why would I want to stand in the wind? What does it mean to speak in tongues? You will never speak in tongues the way you were intended unless you're... Uh, Where in the Bible does it say I was intended to speak in tongues? Willing to embrace that you are an unexpected people who are far deeper and far more complex than what any simple theological sentence can somehow prescribe. We live in a wild world with a very wild God. And where we left this last phrase, are you willing to speak in the language of that which is strange? No. Does that mean I'm not saved? The strangest part of this passage for me is this. Peter says very clearly, God ordained, foreknew, and planned for this Jesus, this Jesus, to die. Yes. And you, with wicked men, you crucified him. All right, now we're talking some gospel stuff here. All right, let's see if you can, like, not over-complexitize this. You put him on the cross. The hearers of that message were seldom, if unlikely, literally the ones who crucified Jesus. The applicability of this passage demands for us to be able to say, what are you speaking about? I didn't have any responsibility in the death of Jesus. Okay, hopefully we're going to steer into something that even that sounds close to the gospel here. I'm crossing my fingers. Why do I feel like I'm just going to end up losing blood to the tips of my fingers? But indeed, Peter invites every one of us to begin this process of saying, are you a God killer? (laughs) Begin the process of saying, am I a God killer? Oh, man. And in what ways have you killed God? What ways have you brought Jesus to the cross? That would be through my sin. Is that what we're talking about? You who killed God, you must know your God killed himself so that you have the privilege of being able to say, I'm loved. Is that speaking in tongues? No, speaking in tongues is speaking in another language. What are you doing? Speak in tongues is not necessarily to have the language of a foreign tongue take over your mind. Really? And uh, where are you getting that from? I mean, you just, you're taking language and turning words. I mean, it's like the word tongues, you know, in glossolalia there in the Greek. Yeah, it's like a piece of silly putty. We can just, you know 
pound it into something different, you know. Uh, you want this to mean something else? No problemo. Let me fix that up there. Da, 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 da. See, it, it, it means something different. I, what are you doing to this text? And therefore speak. Is that a one-time event? From my viewpoint, it is a one-time event. Inaugural and the basis of how we are to live with one another. How are we then to live unexpected, deep and complex, and strange lives together? The, the application of this particular sermon doesn't make any sense either. Okay, so I'm supposed to live a deep and complex, strange life. Got it, yeah. Um, what if I don't want that? Can I just be normal, please? The man that I spoke of, Jacob, uh, I had the privilege of being with him teaching a group of about 45 men and women about human trafficking for a full week. And during that time, I spoke about my own marriage, uh, what the issues were for any who serve in the context of believing but not believing, trusting but not trusting, admitting that there is goodness of the work of God in my being but not being. I mean, this doesn't make this. I mean, seriously. I mean, this is like some kind of a sick postmodern parlor trick, okay? We're going to create the impression of spiritualness, yeah. And the way we're going to do it, man, is we're going to take words that just like, you know, and just like pull out their meaning and then like take the opposite of it and stick it next to it. I mean, so I'm going to be walking but but standing still. I'm going to be running but flying. I'm, I'm going to be uh, swimming but drowning. Um, Yeah, man. You know, I'm going to be golfing, but not golfing. I'm, 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 I'm going to, what, this doesn't mean anything. I'm going to be being, but not being, man. I mean, seriously, is the, is the hermeneutical explanation or the explanation for your hermeneutical bizarreness that you, you, uh, you took a hallucinogenic drug prior to uh, taking the stage there at Mars Hill? What does any of this mean? My own life, and yet seeing so many ways in which I am a God crucifier in my marriage, in the way I handle my finances, in the way I've lived my life. I crucify the living God by my own unfaith, by my own unbelief, by my own arrogance and doubt. How am I to live with the fact that I can say, as many of you can say, I believe, help my unbelief? In an African context, where any doubt, any naming of failure of the big man is considered to be uh, more than inappropriate. For a full week, Jacob had heard me speak. As we came to the end of our time, one of my associates uh, suggested that what we do to end was to do foot washing. And we would be the three who had been teaching, would have the privilege of washing the feet of each man and each woman. There were two women on my team, and they were the ones who would wash the feet of the women, and I had the privilege of washing the feet of the men. And every man came, except for Jacob. What I did not know until later is that Jacob had gone to Burkina Faso, eventually had come to be supported by an American missionary organization, but because he had listened to the Spirit and had chosen to bring over 50 women living in a very small compound and to do so with his family, 
This mission organization thought there was impropriety that a man of God would have such broken women living literally under his own roof, that they had come to deprive him of his small salary. And what he had come to believe after a fashion was that American white missionaries simply would not support nor see the work that he had been drawn to to be completed. And so deep in his own heart, there was a heartache and fury that said, I cannot trust an American white male missionary. Every single day, we have the opportunity to be the presence of Pentecost in people's lives. And the only way we can do so is if we have the ability to bless the unexpected. Is that something you bless? When you heard the announcement the other day that Rob would be departing, did your heart grieve? If it didn't, you're not alive. But in that grief... If there was not something that began the process of waiting and wondering, what will come to be? But within that, a sense that the presence of hope is already at play. Nothing would break my heart more than to see any of you slide away. To simply say it won't be the same, can't be as good as... Uh, I don't want to have to live in the midst of my own life that has so much uncertainty. And also to now, within the larger corporate body, live with that kind of uncertainty. I want a place I can know is solid, good, true, largely expected to be as I knew it to be. The task to be the people of God that are bound by the Spirit is to live with the freedom, the freedom to know we are moving every single day in every portion of our life between death, between waiting and resurrection. And what does that create if we become people like those who were called into Pentecost? I think it creates a kind of solidarity, a kind of shorthand to be able to say, I mean, can any, I mean, seriously, could anybody like take a logical outline of this and make and, and you know, sit down and say, okay, point number one was this, point number two was this, and here's what that means. I mean, this is just one absurd platitude, and, and, and literally, it, it's, I feel like I've fallen through the rabbit hole or gone through Alice's looking glass and uh, you know and now I'm in wonderland and wondering what on earth are these people are talking about this is just nuts say how are you and if you use this phrase and understand what I'm pointing toward really there's only three days in your life it is a day of death for you and if that is it then we can join you in language because we all know what it is to live in the presence of death. Is it a day of waiting? A day of waiting where? You don't wait passively. You wait in the presence of hell. That is where Jesus went. What is it like to wait, to amble, to, uh, to live in the uncertainty? It is to be in the presence of the Spirit who is tending birth within you. The Spirit, she is good. He is good. The, sp- the, the Spirit, she is good? Ho, 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 
Yeah, never is the Holy Spirit in Scripture referred to as a she. Yeah, um, Jesus said when he comes, he. Yeah, wow, this is bad. Whoa, this is all over the map. Bad. Spirit can't even be found to have a gender, but if it is, the gender is more likely a female because it is a birthing process of the spirit within you. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you're basically saying that the spirit has to be a female because of a birthing process that happens within us. Yeah, that's like completely avoiding what Jesus said about the spirit. Let me point this out to you. If you have your Bible, flip on over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I want to show you several passages and in the English, you see the, the personal pronouns that are being used. But i got to tell you this. In the Greek, they come out loud and clear in the Greek. Okay, John 14, we're going to start at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my, or guard, or keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, so there's a lot going on there in 15, 16, and 17 talking about the spirit and uh, and it's about the world cannot accept him in the Greek. There we've got the personal pronoun for him, Haas, and it is absolutely masculine singular. Him, you cannot know, okay? Um, For he lives, okay, with you and will be in you, okay, not leave you as orphans. So, yeah, here, so the, the language there, all the pronouns regarding the Holy Spirit bear out in the Greek, they're all masculine. And then kind of the coup d'etat, or the coup de gras, or, well, you know, the, the big one. <clears throat> uh, scroll down to uh, uh, for, uh, John fourteen twenty five. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will teach you all things. In the, in the Greek there, it's unambiguous, you know, completely unambiguous, that this is a masculine pronoun, and it's the masculine pronoun, ekanos. And, and it is the masculine singular pronoun, ekanos. So it's he, for sure, he, he. It's, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, Akanos, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This also occurs, by the way, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, uh, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he, Akanos again, he will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Greek text makes it perfectly clear that when we're speaking of the Holy Spirit, he is referred to as a he. John could have picked neuters. He could have picked feminine. But writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the the uh, the Apostle John, in referring to the Holy Spirit, made a point of selecting masculine singular 
pronouns in reference to the Holy Spirit. And he was there when Jesus said these words. So, uh, yeah, uh, we've got some, <laughs> we got some big problems here because Dan Allender, contrary to what God the Holy Spirit has revealed about himself in the very word of God, is now basically, um, well, he's, he's, performing a sex change on uh, on the Holy Spirit, in a sense. Yeah, let me back this up here, because uh, we don't have the freedom to just make things up about the Holy Spirit. we got to go with what has been revealed. It is to be in the presence of the Spirit who is tending birth within you. The Spirit, she is good, he is good. The Spirit can't even be found to have a gender, but if it is... The gender is more likely a female because it is a birthing process of the Spirit within you. Then why did uh, the Apostle John, in referring to the Holy Spirit, keep using these pesky masculine singular pronouns regarding him? Hmm? Like a canos? Care to explain that? Will you let the Spirit tend to the birth that he, she wants for you? No, because the Holy Spirit that you're describing isn't the one of the Bible. This is a different spirit. Uh, Definitely not God the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. Nope, this is something different. Your he-she spirit? (laughs) Yeah, keep that thing away from me, okay? I don't have nothing to do with that thing. If so, then you will know that there is a day to come, and it will be a sweet day for those who choose to wait and suffer without sliding. Let there be in this congregation a solidarity that says we know how to grieve and we know how to celebrate. And we know that grief does not remove the privilege of being able to say he is resurrected. And on the other hand, that the resurrection does not take away the agony of loss. So to speak into life today with the tongues of Pentecost, you must choose to be an unexpected people with a kind of solidarity that has the freedom to be able to say we know the depth of the work of God. Yeah, again, I'm hearing words, none of it means anything, and apparently he's guided by the he-she spirit. We know how that's giving birth in the womb of his something or how he brings Joel and David. We know how he brings epiphanies and how he brings the spirit and the reversal of Babel. Do you see what Pentecost is? Pentecost is a reversal of all the dispersal of languages so that none of us really can understand one another well. It is a day in which... You're right. It, you're correct in the metaphor here in comparing it to the Tower of Babel. Yes, it is a reversal of that for a temporary moment so the gospel can be preached and heard and understood. Those who speak of Pentecost speak in a way in which they bridge relationships and build communities and create connections that are not natural. So if you wish to be a Pentecostal people, the price is you must grow in your capacity to bless the unexpected. You must bless the absolute complexity. Yeah, how are you getting any of this out of the text again? Because, again, all of this is just flat-out spiritual gobbledygook and gibberish. And what does complexity and depth bring to a people? 
It brings the capacity for imagination. And one of the core realities of those who speak the language of the Spirit is they speak with a language that is preposterous with regard to hope. The gospel is about imagination. Really? The gospel is about imagination? Yeah, that's weird. Uh, The Apostle Paul, when talking about the gospel and clearly define it, didn't mention nothing about uh, imagination. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's see if imagination is one of the features of the biblical gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1, writing to the churches, churches there in Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. So that kind of, that's kind of tells us what he's talking about. He's steering into a conversation about the gospel, which you received, which you stand, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the and to the all, all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Hmm. Nothing here about imagination. Hmm. So we got a different spirit. You got the Hishi spirit. Uh, you I you've got flat out spiritual gobbledygook and stuff about embracing complexity and and suddenness and things like that that you can't actually get out of the text. Uh, We've heard very little, very, very little about Jesus at all. And now you're telling us that the gospel has something to do with imagination. Um, Yeah, this ain't the gospel. Um, This is something completely different and this will actually probably send people to hell, but you know, you know. Well, maybe you got it from them, you know, from Fantasmic at Disneyland. Yeah, you know, maybe that's where you got it from. All right, all right, enough of that. Where does the gospel get lived in this day? Uh, the gospel doesn't get lived. You see, that's a category fallacy. The God, see, remember when I just read 1 Corinthians 15? The gospel is the announcement of what Jesus has done. Died for our sins, rose again on the third day. He lived it. We proclaim the good news. We don't live the good news. That's ridiculous. <sighs> Brilliant mind and heart, like Rob Bell, being called into a world to be able to create a series of narratives that reveal the matter of what it means to mature, to grow, that is stunning imagination. And this, Yeah, it has nothing to do with the biblical gospel either. This church has a rich history of living with the wild imagination of music like Brie and poetry. Uh, and narratives of drama. What I hope and pray for is that the Pentecostal Spirit of God will draw this congregation to imagine new ways of being together as the people of God. And what is the core of the reality of speaking? It is to live in the strangeness of what every redemptive story is about. 
Mm, yeah, live in the strangeness of every redemptive story. Okay. As I was called to wait. I mean, seriously. I mean, has he been taking bong hits? I mean, I'm. I mean, seriously. I mean, each of these phrases, it's as if you know, you got to go and take a bong hit. You know. And now we got to live in the strangeness, man. Dude, embrace the complexity. I'm all about resurrection. I mean, it was, seriously, it's like, what is this? And to wash the feet of the men who came. Many of these men, African men, have never in their lives had the opportunity to have their feet washed by a white American male. And the faces that they brought of incredulity, almost suspicion. You, a white man, will kneel at my feet and take water and soap and wash them. It was not a humbling gift for me to do what I did. It was a supreme honor to be able to touch the feet of men who have risked their lives for hated women in their culture. But when Jacob came, finally after waiting and waiting, his face was enraged at the thought of being touched by a white man like all the other white men who had already betrayed him. But as I began to wash his feet and bless him, As I said to him, you are a man of courage and your heart has been broken, but you have sustained and lived a life that is outrageous in your passion for the goodness of God. As I began to bless him, and if you're hearing the core message of what I hope for you to hear, it is when you... There's a core to this message? Yeah, I, I would um, I would be hard-pressed to actually define that. Bring blessing to any other in the midst of your own uncertainty and the depth of the complexity of your own life. When you bring the blessing of the radical word of God into any human life, you are speaking in tongues. You are speaking language. Yeah, this, I mean, again, this is just utter gibberish. Just playing around with the meanings of words and assigning meanings to words that, well, all, all the words have lost all of their meaning now. That defies the power of Babel. You are building bridges that somehow get to the very depth of what every human heart desires. And as I washed his feet slowly, and if this word troubles you, may it be, as I washed his feet slowly and sensuously, and as I spoke the blessing of God, as I heard it from the Spirit on his behalf, I saw his rigid, frozen, angry face begin to thaw. And tears began to come. And as I continued to speak life to this man, this man began to be racked in tears. And when I finished, he stood and he embraced me and began to weep. Have you felt the presence of another human being in your arms weeping? Do you want to know what it is to speak in tongues? 
It is the ability to speak of the reality that this man who hated me because what I represented had already broken his heart. And yet the very presence of my face, my touch, and my words defied the powers of evil that had spoken ill to his own heart. We must be people willing to stand between death and life and to speak in the middle of death and life the blessing of what it is that God has offered. And the gift for that moment for me is a moment that I will never forget, and that is to hold a man five foot four in height whose arms held me and wept in my presence and then spoke to my ear what it is that the Spirit does when there is blessing. And that is he spoke God to me and said, Thank you. Thank you for being a taste of the living God on my behalf. I pierced his heart because I exposed even in my touch you, Jacob, man of God who left a prime and powerful job to live in the midst of a dark and very, very, very evil world. You who have lived so very well but have hated very deeply. You, you are my beloved. Will we speak to one another what is true? We are God killers. And we are so loved that he has left the front of the Babylonian army in order to bring his own son to death on our behalf. And what was the result for the people of God when they heard this? They were pierced. And what I would pray before I depart is that your heart would begin to hear, where has your heart turned cold? Where has your heart begun to turn already from what it is that God wants to do with you in the midst of the transition from what this church was to what this church is meant to be? Where have you already begun to ponder what you're going to do? Where has it been easier to think there will be a better and different place after I depart from here? Uh, I pray for you that you will not slide. I pray for you that you will do that which is unexpected, that you will not be like many big churches when a powerful presence of goodness departs, that you simply find the exit door more convenient than having to bear the loss, entering into that period of unknown and allowing new, new, new to come to be because of the resurrection of Jesus. Really, what does it mean? Yeah, are you allowing new come to be because of the resurrection? Yeah, because if you're not... Um, I guess that's bad. You you don't want to disallow new to come to be because, yeah. I mean, this is utter nonsense. I mean, to stand in the way of Babel, to speak a new language. It's the moment we enter into the interplay between death and life with that core promise that we who are God killers have a God who is willing to stand at our face and say, I repent. I repent. I will bless you. I will bring goodness to you. And my resurrection, 
My resurrection is the basis not only of you being grieved and pierced, but you being brought to life so that the resurrection becomes the basis of how we engage with one another in conversations, how we differ with one another as we debate what the future holds for us individually or corporately. What does it mean that we operate with that kind of power? For you to do so as a congregation, for you to do so as an individual, I can only say, we who are outside of your community, we are watching, we are waiting, we are praying, and we pray that you become, through this process, the Pentecostal people of God, who as you build bridges, become people who know what it is to bring death to life, life to death, and goodness, goodness, the goodness of blessing to one another in a way in which you can say 3,000 were added to their numbers at the end of the day. Thank you. What on earth was that? You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Yeah, there you go. Um, that I think that just about covers it. Um, wow. Um, <laughs> just take your mind and put it into a pretzel. Take a bong hit. Uh, drop some LSD. Um, because you're gonna need psychedelics in order to like pr- just to be able to pretend that you understood anything that that guy was saying. Sure did sound spiritual though, because of the tone that he delivered it in. Oh man. Talk about missing the point. Acts chapter 2 is about Jesus. Plain and simple. And that's not what we heard. We heard a complete obfuscation, a blowing, uh, basically a blowing up of the text, uh, the creation of a smoke screen, the, the, the application of a blur filter so that you couldn't see Jesus. And at the, I mean, anybody at the end of this go, oh, wow, yeah, that was the deepest thing I've ever, um, yeah, it's it's this is the story of the emperor has no clothes. I mean, anybody who attended Mars Hill Bible Church who thought, oh, that was the most profound thing I've ever heard. It's the equivalent of somebody saying, oh, yes, king, those are the most magnificent clothes ever made. Was strutting around in his birthday suit. Oh, man. So... Portions of the Protestant church have just fallen to pure asininity. I mean, this is, oh, oh man. Okay, I, I got to go take two days off. I, I can't, whew. Yeah, all right. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, but you never know, we could actually be at the beginning of the end. Or we could be at the beginning again, because, you know, that's the thing is, are you are you beginning your endings? <laughs> Just, I, I can't even do it. I just, oh man. Just a reminder Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. Head over to our website and uh, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. We truly do need your help to keep doing what we're doing to warn the church that they ain't being taught the Bible. They're being taught, well, just asinine, crazy stuff. 
rather than the biblical truth. Pray for the folks there at uh, Mars Hill Bible Church that somehow uh, this these types of reviews and information get into their hands so they can realize they're not being taught the truth so they can run, run for their lives. Otherwise, they're going to find themselves careening off the eternal cliff into the chasms of the lake of fire, a.k.a. hell. Anyway, all right. So uh, what'd you think? You know, I'd uh, love to get your feedback. You can email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. It's so simple. I mean, even a kid could preach it if they knew it. Uh, amen. Amen.